Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And this is The Ready State. You got it! Welcome back to The Ready State. On today's episode, we are honored to have Dr. Jose Greenspawn, who's a board-certified pediatric surgeon and a childhood obesity expert. Yeah, he's a bariatric surgeon. And what's so interesting about this conversation is here we have a physician working in the trenches, really trying to help families unravel this complex problem, and he is going back to the root. So one of the great things you're going to take away from this conversation is what he thinks are five really radical interventions that can help a family struggling with this. And also, I think it it, it informs us that a lot of people are beginning to work on this clear problem of mismatch between human and environment, especially when our children, from different angles. We have coaches, we have have nutrition experts, we have physiologists, but this is the physician coming back towards the center. And Dr. Greenspawn really does give us all a state of the state of childhood and adult, the childhood and adult obesity epidemic, and a ton of practical takeaway advice for everyone, regardless of where you're coming from on this. And I'll just say personally, if this is the future of our physicians who speak nutrition, who speak exercise, who are thinking in a systems approach, there's hope, there's hope for us. Enjoy. Okay, welcome, Dr. Greenspawn, to the Ready State Podcast. We are delighted to have you today. And before we get into all the cool things you're working on and talk in depth about the childhood obesity epidemic and the work that you're doing today, can you give us a little bit of background about um, how you got into this and um, just a little bit about your medical history and background? Wait, 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 medical history. I love the Not your personal defaulting. medical history. How about this? If we were in an elevator and I was like, hey, you're Jose. I do not do? have hemorrhoids. What do you do for a living? <laughs> what do you do for a living? So I'm a, my name is Jose Greenspan. I'm a pediatric surgeon. Um, that's basically somebody who spent a decade in training after medical school, which means that we're very committed to being ADD. Um, the cool <laughs> thing about being a pediatric surgeon and what really drew me to pediatric surgery is that, you know, in adult surgery, you have a thoracic surgeon or an endocrine surgeon or a breast surgeon, an oncologic surgeon, hepatobiliary surgeon. We're all of those things. Pediatric wow. surgeons operate on babies from the first day of life till they're 18, typically. We operate on birth defects all over the, basically in the thorax from the neck down. Um, we typically operate on everything in the chest with the exception of the heart and the main blood vessels operate on everything with the exception of the spine. Um, and so I went into pediatric surgery, operate on tiny little babies. Um, and here we are talking about obesity and bariatric surgery and that kind of thing, which is pretty ironic. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, if I'd be doing this, I'd say there is no way in hell. However, um, how did you make that transition from operating on babies to, um, you know, doing, uh, the work that you're doing. Yeah, the tell, work that tell you're some doing more now. about that. So what happened was, I mean, I've always been interested in obesity, having been an obese adolescent myself. But my, what compelled me to look at obesity as a medical professional was I was at a meeting with one of my partners where somebody presented incredibly compelling data about the effectiveness of bariatric surgery for remission of diabetes. So when an adolescent reaches um, morbid 
Leo obese levels. So they are above the 99th percentile and they happen to be diabetic. The likelihood of them being a non-diabetic adult is like 5%. And it, the hmm. diabetes actually gets worse even with aggressive management versus what this presentation that really compelled me was that surgery was able to put patients who had diabetes into remission 95% of the time. So I was like, that's amazing. Insane. I mean, and we're talking about, you're talking about type two, yes, type two, the, what we used to call adult onset diabetes, which is not the case anymore. It is not adult onset. I'm sure we'll get into it, but that's what really sort of, it, it alerted me that this is something I should be really thinking about. I was always, my practice has been focused around nutrition. So as when I became a pediatric surgeon, sort of in my own practice, the area that I focused on was in something called intestinal rehabilitation. So um, my research has been in nutrition and intestinal inflammation. And I was taking care of babies who basically had, had some sort of either a con infectious condition or congenital problem that resulted in their bowels not working. And my goal was to find a way to provide nutrition because nutrition is, you know, paramount in a way that used the gut. And if, a lot of times you have to use IV nutrition, but our goal was to make all these little babies eventually get all the nutrition through the gut. So my background was in nutrition already, um, but just on the other side of the spectrum of nutrition, you know? Um, but as this... This one little thing, this little idea of this diabetes, um, putting patients who have severe diabetes into remission really made me feel, I was very compelled to look more into what, how I can introduce management of obesity into my practice. And, you know, the, where we are now and what I'm doing, especially not in the hospital, is far away from diabetes specifically, but that's how the whole idea of doing any sort of surgery for obesity or any management for obesity even started. So um, I really want to talk about the cool program you're working on called Teen Lift, but I have a bunch of questions I want to get to before that. And the first one is, can you run us through what I assume will be sort of grim current childhood and adult obesity statistics? Sure. <laughs> I, this is a kind of a, <laughs> a, you know, sit back because it's going to kind of blow you away numbers. So Adult obesity uh, affects about 90 million people in the U.S., of which 18 million of these obese people are kids. 18 million. And when we look at those 18 million kids, a quarter of them are considered to be morbidly obese. So 4.5 million children in the U.S. are morbidly obese. And what does that mean? What's the, you know, where's the mark where you go from so obese to more BMI, obese? so there's a lot of different ways of measuring um, obesity levels, but BMI is the one that is most um, commonly used. So a BMI of 20, really 25 to 30 is considered overweight. Over 30 is obese. 35 is morbidly obese. 40, really 40 is the number that we consider um, the patients who we would do surgery on. BMI of 35 is the cutoff from going from obese to morbidly obese. And that's the 99th percentile most of the time. Let me just jump in here for a second because 
those those listeners who are sophisticated and understand BMI is not necessarily a great yeah. indicator of health, but it's an excellent indicator and correlates well with these disease states. Correct. It's a, Am it's I right about that? It's an index which suggests, assuming, because it's very hard to use BMI. I, I mean, I border on obese BMI because I'm pretty lean and I'm pretty short, right? Because we're using BMI takes weight and height and gives you a calculation of the of a ratio of weight um, over height. So if, I'm, if you're short and you're stocky, you might actually fall into a BMI that's borderline weight. But if you have a way of measuring your lean body mass and you're your lean body mass is in the teens, you know, that's not somebody who's likely to be obese. But that's the thing is that obese, you can't necessarily um, use lean body mass as a great correlate because that's not available to a lot of people. I mean, the vast majority of the population don't have access to a bot pot or, you know, other ways of measuring truly lean body mass. So BMI is a pretty good correlate for health. Okay, so we have... Um... 18 million obese kids, a quarter of which are morbidly obese. And then I, I felt like I cut you off there with, with even more data we're and about statistics. The same decade and age, right? So when we were growing up, I mean, I was the fat kid, right? There was the fat kid or the kid who was obese. There was, I mean, obesity was rare. It wasn't that it was a common thing. Ch childhood obesity was something that in the 1970s and 80s was about 2 to 5%. Now it's almost 20%. And in some states, it's greater than 20%. Um, so it's, it's sort of the, the exponential growth of obesity is staggering. Um, you know, you ask, you, there's, you ask yourself the question of, with this rapid rise, will everybody be obese? And actually, there's a paper from 2008 that asked that very question. And it looked at this... National Health and Nutrition Exam, um, which is basically this uh, query that they are able to get, they're able to get specific measurements um, from a large cohort of the population. And in this, um, this uh, examination or this query, uh, the objective was to illustrate the potential burden of obesity based on current trends. So they wanted to know, based on how many people were obese when they did that study, how many people were going to be obese in the future? And so they looked at, based on the numbers in 2008, what was going to be the trend in 2030 and 2050. What they found was that by 2030, the projection was that 60% of the U.S. population was going to be obese. By 2050, more than 80%. And the number where everybody's going to be obese is by 2075. So, and that's like 100%. And this, by the way, is obese, not overweight. Yeah, not overweight. This is obese. And, wow. and the, the sort of the curve, the steepness of the curve was not the same for all um, cohorts, meaning that there are certain cohorts that were much more at risk. So, black women at a much, much faster rate based on the current trend, where black women were expected by 2030, 96% would be uh, obese by 2030. 2030 is not far away from now. Right? No. And, and Mexican-American men, so that's me, uh, 91%. Um, so it's, it's pretty scary. That's a paper from 2008. If you guys remember let, when we... Let me ask... Yeah. If you guys... Yeah. 
That was that was a full ten years ago. L- let me ask you this: I mean, these numbers are frankly shocking, and you know the progression is also a little bit difficult to wrap my head around. Can you help us understand what that means in terms of like medical experience, disease? Because you know obesity by itself creates a set of problems, but it's the associated sequelae of issues around it that's really an issue. Can you? What does that mean in terms of healthcare? What does that mean in terms of disease state and wellness? I mean, help help kind of paint in that picture. So we have this gigantic number that doesn't seem to be decelerating. It seems to be that we're we're making we're getting worse at this problem as a country. What does that mean in terms of dollars, in terms of health, disease, et cetera? So this act this paper itself also looked at that looking backwards. So <coughs> they saw that previous two decades to 2008, the amount of money that was being spent, direct healthcare costs for obesity, um, attributable to overweight and obesity, were a certain number. And they recognized that basically every decade previous, costs doubled every decade. So their projection was that by 2030, healthcare costs were attributable to obesity of about $900 billion. Wow. And the deficit is $778 billion. Yeah. Yeah. So to give you you the number that they had used, so in 2000, it was $81.5 billion directly attributable to obesity. And by 2030, it was $900 billion. And, uh, you know, you mentioned this paper was put out in 2008, and we'll definitely put a link to it in the show notes if anyone wants to go deep on this. But um, has there been any similar slash updated data or studies on this since 2008 that any more current information? So when we, you and I, and Kelly, if you guys remember, I started sending you all these annoying emails in like January. They were not annoying. (laughs) So I sent you actually, but they were fun. I, there was a, a paper that I sent you guys uh, from the New England Journal of Medicine from November of 2017. It was a simulation of growth trajectories of childhood obesity into adulthood. Um, in this paper, they actually took kind of stu- the kind of um, methodology they used in other papers, and they went to town. Basically, instead of using only one longitudinal study to identify some sort of trajectory and simulation model. They pulled data from five different representative longitudinal studies. And what it ended up showing us is that they were able to pool data of about a thousand populations of a million children. So basically they were able to their the big you know big data, they were able to apply big data to projection. And they used the observations of these about a million children ages two to 19 to project what's going to happen, the growth trajectories over the course of their life. And what they found was that children two to 19 years old in 2015, they projected, and this is all children, it doesn't, does not divide children who are obese or overweight, all children together. So it, it, what it found was that all children who are 2 to 19, 60% are expected to be obese by the time they're 30. 
We have two children in that uh, range. Let me ask you this. You know, you are at the, you know, it, it's interesting when you are at the tail end. I mean, you are literally at the pointy end of the stick where kids are coming in for appropriate life-saving surgeries and as an, as an intervention, but that's pretty late in the, in the intervention process. And we'll, we'll talk about what you're doing on the, on the front side of that because it's pretty revolutionary and radical, but can you help us understand from your perspective, what is going on? What are, what are we getting wrong? Why are we failing these kids? What's happening? Well, I feel like, and this, you know, you get into it a little bit in your, in your book, um, standing desk stuff. I mean, the problem is this. There is no question that it's multifactorial. There is genetics involved there, and there is um, sort of a societal shift from being an agrarian society where we used to have to go find our food, now having it. I mean, people sit on their couch and order from Amazon, and they can have all their food delivered directly to their house. They don't even go to the store anymore. I mean, that's an extra step that potentially was where people were, you know, they were this level of sedentarianism. I don't know if that's a real word, but if you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying, that it's just, it's, it's getting worse. So there's no question that that contributes to it. But we also know that um, our bodies, the way the metabolism in our bodies is, um, is processing different um, macronutrients appears to be changing also. Um, macronutrients are not as, um, they're much more refined now, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, so I think that there's a lot of contribute, a lot of contributory factors to why this is happening and at such a crazy rate. Um, but I, I mean, there are, the thing is that that doesn't mean that if, what we should be doing is once a, once a patient reaches obesity, we should send him for a bariatric surgery. I think as a society, we have to find a way to reintroduce some of the healthy habits that were, that were important to maintaining a healthy lifestyle because we don't, we are going to, I think, approach the numbers that these projections, you know, what they're saying. So in that um, question for you, in that New England Journal of Medicine report that you shared with us, it said that uh, projected two kids, two to 19 60% of them will be obese. Is there any data on how many people in addition to that will also be overweight? You know, are we looking at another 30% of people overweight? So that will be, you know, in a very yeah, so short I, span you know, of time, we're going to have 90% of people either overweight or obese. You know, I don't have that number in front of me because I was, I was pretty compelled by the, um, the, obese, the obese number. But there's no question. There's like when we talk about an injury, you know, there's the area that's directly injured, yeah. and then there's what we call the penumbra, which is the area just outside of the injury that is still significantly affected. So people who are overweight, or only moderately obese, they're just, they're clipping the treetops. They're, they're not far away from just falling into that obese classification. So in that paper, I'm sure they talk about exactly those numbers. To just to know that 60% of the U.S. population of kids who are currently 2 to 19, even if they're right now underweight, are predicted to be obese, 
by the time they're 35. And that's not that's, that's not overweight. That's obese. Yeah, that's obese. That's, well, that's like two standard deviations. I mean, we're like we've, we've transcended our already a sort of a, a warning sign for parents and and healthcare providers that hey something something's going wrong and we're 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 waiting until it's tripped. The 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 alarm is blaring. I so, mean, this, this oh, paper also did one other thing that I thought was pretty interesting that, okay, so, I, you know, the number that I mentioned was all kids who, all kids, but how about if we look at the obese kids who are two to 19? So obese kids who are two to 19, if they're two years old and they're obese, the likelihood that they're going to be an obese adult is 75%. And if they're 19, it's 90%. <sighs> yeah, so it's just... So hard to reverse. Um, question for you: What role does what do you think the role of early childhood nutrition play in the in the future likelihood of obesity? And if I could just add a little commentary on this, you know, one of the things I find as a challenge as a parent, a sort of health, a person who cares a lot about health in in my community, and something Kelly and Lisa and I have discussed at length is that it seems that the only real marker or 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 clue for parents that their nutrition strategy at home is not working is if their kid is overweight and, and only then if their kid is overweight, do they sort of modify their kid's diet. But if their kid is normal size as a kid, it seems like it's standard American diet, including pretty much as much sugar as the kid can ingest because there's no observable impact. I mean, we, we just recently watched one of our friend's kids roll around on the ground at a party after not eating dinner and only eating sugar <laughs> <laughs> and writhe on the ground in, in like, like a in like a, a post fugue tantrum state. Right, yeah. he was kind of crying, but, but I, he's a skinny kid. Yeah, yeah, so I just I feel like it's really hard to get parents to care when they have a normal weight kid today who can pretty much eat all the chicken nuggets and you know ice cream sandwiches that they want and remain lean at least at this point. But you know, is there a correlation between? as Kelly and I say, eating like an asshole as a yeah. kid and your likelihood of falling into that 60% of obesity as, kids, a, as an adult. That's really un, ungenerous, Juliet. Kids can only eat like jerks. Jerk, adults Jerky. eat like yeah. assholes. Yes. I, you know, I would bet you that there is a study that looked at that and that I know that there's several foundations that their sole goal is to provide healthy food options in the schools. And a lot of this came out of the uh, Obama administration. I hope will not get blown out of the water, but if I, there is there is definitely a correlation with having more than ten percent of your calories as a child coming from free sugars and developing obesity in adulthood. And it doesn't matter whether you ingested those calories while you were a skinny little kid or an obese kid. Um, that's why. The World Health Organization in 2015 put out a statement about make you know a very strong recommendation, almost policy level, that you shouldn't have more than 10% of your diet of your calories coming from um, added sugars like juice. Oh, well, or Izzy. Wow, that's my favorite subject, and um, I, I can't help Costco but now muffin. ask you about that, which is that. Um, I've recently been in a debate with some community members about selling juice and the um, soda alternative called an Izzy at our schools. 
Um, and an Izzy is, uh, there, there seems to be a misperception that because an Izzy is sweetened with fruit juice and a Minute Maid is made of juice, um, that those are somehow not as bad for you as a 7-Up when, at least when I look at the nutrition facts, an Izzy has as much sugar as a 7-Up. Can you please help me with some scientific logical argument about why we should not be feeding Izzy's to our kids at school? <laughs> well, you know, if I were to make five recommendations, but, you know, we were talking about what are five things families can do. One of them is don't drink your calories because satiety. So when we eat, one of the things that our body relies on is that the stomach stretches. And there are receptors within the stomach, gastric receptors, that send off hormones, which make the brain feel full. What happens is when we drink, especially if we drink while we are eating, we're emptying that stomach too quickly and we don't necessarily reach satiety quickly enough. So we keep eating. And if you're drinking sugar, not only are you not getting anything out of that sugar, you're increasing your risk of caries. So we know that dental cavities are directly correlated to drinking calories. And those calories that you're drinking have been shown to increase your risk of obesity in adulthood because you're not getting any satiety from those calories. So that's two compelling arguments to not drink anything that has calories. I mean, I like beer, <laughs> but I, you know, that's, I have a beer here and there. I'm glad, I'm glad you clarified that in our recent political uh, and environment. I have to just run this to ground and this is for me. Yeah. And that is that does it matter yeah. if, it is juice versus high fructose, you know, something sweetened with juice versus high fructose corn syrup. Basically, once it passes the lips, in my understanding, your body treats it like sugar, and it's sugar. I mean, same goes for wine. It's sugar. It makes no difference. It is the same. It is processed the same way. And the same way that 7-Up is calories within uh, a liquid which provides zero satiety and just provide empty calories and uh, coats your teeth and gives your bacteria in your mouth a perfect medium to cause a little hole in the enamel. It's the same thing with Minute Maid. It's the same thing if you have fresh pressed orange juice. There's so, no difference. You can get a vitamin C by a vitamin C in a pill and you get what you need. Hold on to your butts, no, no, everybody. I'm, I'm done with the juice thing because before I went on my juice tantrum, um, you did say there were sort of, you actually suggested five things families could yes. do, and we only got to the one, which is don't drink your calories. So I would want to just make sure I close that loop and hear the other four things. So, you know, this is, if you remember, this is an email we had back and forth of like, okay, what's a, like a good thing to sort of, you know, if we can sort of uh, encapsulate what I would recommend to a family as an obesity expert. And I don't consider myself an obesity expert on the levels of somebody like Ludwig in Boston um, or uh, Tony Friedhoff in uh, Ottawa. Those guys, I think, are they have so much knowledge. But dealing with so many obese kids, if I were to make five recommendations, the first one would be that in order for, especially an obese adolescent, so if you already have somebody in the family who's obese, and especially if there there is like a heterogeneous body habitus to the, to the family. So you have some kids in the family who are not obese and some that are. That family has to have a healthy relationship with food 
and the environment. You can't split. So you can't provide different kinds of foods to that one kid and expect that kid to feel like they're have they're part of the family. So if we see this all the time where we have obese adolescents and a pretty thin parent that you know they they'll buy specific foods for that one kid and they don't weigh, lose any weight. And that if, if you can't make them feel like you're invested in their in their health and you're willing to take the same um, sort of changes on your life, it's not going to work. Yeah, so full Second, family approach. Drink, full family approach. And and that's uh, that's really reasonable. Calories. I mean, I mean just so the, those those people who are familiar in the sports performance universe, you are not just classically trained through the very little nutrition you had in med school, but you, I mean you you have sought out some other behavioral based nutrition like John Berardi. Like you're 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 familiar okay. in this language. So I just want to give people the framework that you're just not coming from the, the RDA food FDA food pyramid guy. No, I will say that the past three years I have made a tremendously deep dive really four years into what it means to what 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 are healthy food habits, what is the appropriate kind of nutrition we should be providing our, ourselves and our that's not just for performance but just for health. Um, and, you know, um, I will say that having Juliet recommend me, sort of direct me toward John Berardi's program was, I mean, it op- it, the second part of that program, especially the coaching half of that program, um, it's just fantastic. But even the science part, which I, I knew a lot of it, but it had never been framed the same way in terms of nutrition. So I see a lot of things that I had learned previously in a totally different Love it. We are we are. So let's go. Precision okay, nutrition fan. fans. We're huge fans. Fan. Okay, so so we've got so five main things. Don't drink. Don't drink calories. Family. Don't drink your calories. Two is family that approach. Family approach. Don't split the. Don't eat, split eat, your eating. Right. Eat meals together. That's number three. Eat them at the table and don't graze, because I think if you if you make meal time time where you are eating and you sort of have it are eating together with everybody's phone put away, there's a mindfulness to that that ritual and the calories that you're eating are especially if you're eating together and eating healthy food it sort of it becomes something that's is a healthy um, environment for people and you sort of take some time especially for families who don't do this but eating together with your your family at a table until you feel 80 percent full and then <laughs> not grazing afterwards that is that is I believe the kind of environment that was beneficial in the past for people to not put on the weight that we are seeing people putting. Um, so that eat meals together at a table. Love uh, and by four, the way, as a performance yeah. hack, if I use the, word, the yeah. word, every professional group I see that is really cutting edge and successful has some kind of ritual meal. It might be, might be at the elite military units. It might be, uh, you know, professional professional groups or even high-performance high, high universities, they eat together. There's, there is, you know, I think Paulin has talked a lot about that, that there is, there is a society drive to sit together. And so it not only is like, will it be better around food, but you'll also be a better family. Right. 
Right, because there's so many okay. ancillary benefits to actually sitting there as a family, like talking to one another. Stop it. <laughs> okay, well, sorry, I, I digress. Continue okay, so that's, on. Number three is eat three. together. What's four? It's not all about the diet. I mean, I think um, healthy lifestyle is about getting the right amount of sleep, getting the right amount of recovery, and limiting your time staring at a blue screen that's staring right back at you. Um, I, I'm, I'm there's a, not there's sure whether to go on to number five, but you know, you've also hit on one of our favorite subjects and maybe we could sort of take a little turn here and talk a bit about the role of sleep and obesity. Do you think, let me ask you this, the kids you see when you do a sleep inventory, how do they sleep? Is there, have you seen a trend in kids who happen to be obese or morbidly obese or super morbidly obese? Are, is their sleep also excellent? I will say this. One of my first questions in my intake is how often in a week during class do you fall asleep? And wow. the morbidly obese kids do not go a week without falling asleep. Most of them say they fall asleep every day. Wow. And is that because by way of being morbidly obese, their sleep is disrupted, or is it because it has nothing to do with their obesity and just that sleep is not it's hard know, managed know. in their household? Well, if, if part of my sleep intake, well, I, I will ask the parent, how often did you say you notice your child um, snores? And that's not as frequent as the sleep falling asleep, meaning that if the people who are falling asleep correlated one-to-one with patients who had obstructive sleep apnea, then I wouldn't attribute it to anything but that. But almost every kid falls, almost every kid of my obese kids falls asleep. But not every one of them snores. So there's other contributory factors, which I believe is poor sleep, mostly because they're going to sleep with their phone in their hand. Right, and not actually, um, you know, giving themselves enough opportunity to sleep enough hours. Right. Partly because of the phone and partly because they probably don't go to sleep really enough. We go to sleep late. I was emailing you guys uh, around recently. Uh, one of our friends is an incredible powerlifter named Stan Efferding, sure. who works with some of the strongest men and women on the planet, uh, like world's strongest man kind of people. And Stan was seeing that these guys who were eating so many calories were just having a whole bunch of life mishaps that weren't great around toilet uh, experiences, the stomach discomfort. And one of the things he recommended straight up, he said, is, look, if you're, if you have a girthy neck, you know, and you're a strong person, like you should absolutely be on a CPAP machine. And one of the things that he just straight up prescribes for his strength athletes who are not necessarily obese, but who are gigantic human beings, sometimes 400 pounds and very, very strong and six, seven, he just, he just defaults and says, you have to be on a sleep apnea machine. Otherwise, we can't guarantee that you're getting sleep because you're just your neck is too thick. I, I could totally see that. Yeah, I mean, they're. I'm sure they're also. I mean, the level of musculature that these guys have in the posterior neck sure affects the way their palate, dynamics of their palate. So, it makes a lot of sense. So you're saying? What, what, so yeah. What I'm getting at is, we should not take sleep density or sleep quality for granted. Right. That not only, and that's a good indicator is that if I have a, 
a child who's falling asleep during the day, that's a great indicator, especially in class, since it's easy to track and kids can pay attention. And, and it's, and it, it's sort of a reporting item that isn't necessarily laden with guilt. Right. right? Oh yeah. I right. And that's, that's the reason why I asked the question. It's not like, you know, Hey, I've fallen asleep too. Um, but I was on call the night before. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So tell us uh, number five, and then I want to move into talking about teen lift. Number five is get outside. The thing is that you know, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, both make recommendations that nobody follows. One of the recommendations that they've made in the past, I can't remember if it was 2015 or 2014, was that every child should have 60 minutes of exercise every single day. And when they go back and do surveys, see how compliant the recommendation, the, the people were to their recommendations, what they found was that um, less than 20% of high school students engage in the recommended amount of activity. So 80% wait, wait, say 80 that again. of high school students don't get 60 minutes of Now that could be that. Eight out of 10 kids don't get the 60 right. minutes of it doesn't have to be exercise. 60 minutes. And what, what could that, what could that mean? What, what, you would, know, would tell walking me the, hit walking, that number. Yeah. Walking what briskly actually what? is included. So if you walk briskly, three times for 20 minutes, that's actually 60 minutes. But that even that 80% of high schoolers are not hitting. And the bigger thing is that there was another number, which to me was much more compelling, that 20% of high school students, so one in five, didn't ever get 60 minutes on any day. So 20, one in five, one in five. high school students. And, and what I remember being, being a teenager was that uh, I always ate yeah, perfectly. And I was always, and I always slept like 15 hours. Is that, is I, that, I mean, I didn't sleep and I ate, I mean, I had terrible acne yeah. in high school and I was like, I don't know what it is. It must be genetic. It has nothing to do with the things that I'm right. eating. No, I mean, that's the thing is. <laughs> you mean the four bagels and hot chocolate hey, you, you just, eat every you day? Hush. Okay. <laughs> you fall asleep in class only after I eat four bagels I mean, and my break. parents remind me all the time, which is not fun, but I used to get home from high school and grab a gallon of, of, uh, Breyer's ice cream and a two liter bottle of A&W. And I used to have root beer floats until both of the, those items were done. And that was, one- <laughs> oh that was so legit. You know, you know, so this is really interesting because did you buy that? Who know, bought but that? I do know that. <laughs> You're just like, I don't know. It's I, I killed yeah, it, it yesterday and I showed back up and it was against it because your mom loved I you. Wondered you, why you made happy. Am I so fat? You know, <laughs> and I, it was just, it bothered me while I was drinking my root beer float, like number three. It like, it just, you know. Yeah. You had a, a complete brain disconnect between your root beer floats and what was actually going on in your body. We, we, you know, we, to, to step away from just sort of disease state, I mean, you know, you can get away with a lot for a long time. And I remember, um, you know, thinking about trying to gain weight in high school and always eating to, to try to hit some, some number. And I, I just ate poorly. You know, I didn't know any better. I mean, my girlfriend at, out of love would like take milkshakes and blend up Snickers bars in there just for right. a little extra zhuzh, you know? And, um, you know, I think I took a weight gainer 900 and, and I don't mean to, uh, you know, my point is that like, wow, it was really difficult for me to eat well just because of the temptation. And that was in the nineties. I mean, it's, I definitely think it's just, it's worse. It's really, it's difficult. It's just so easy to get these crappy. But I also think very easy. that you were, 
very active. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, very active. you know, the, the, but, but I mean, but if you take that out, I mean, my, I mean, I had terrible asthma in high school, I had terrible acne in high school. Right. I mean, just like, I mean, like, yeah, you I had, yeah, you had some signs and symptoms. I had but, some, sim- you know, and yeah. I'm just saying you pull out this one sort of controlling factor and poof, you know, like the whole thing, the wheels start to fall off. I want to ask you, because we just, we've had a talk with one of our friends, Nick, Dr. Nick Gill, and he's written a book who, I mean, who is a performance, brilliant mind and thinker, but he's written a book about health and wellness at a population level for like moms and dads. And which really means that if we're going to help unravel and support children, it, it's not the child necessarily. The child is a product of the environment. We have to start at kids, at, you know, at the family level. And that's so difficult because you're now unraveling another generation of, of trauma and, and disordered eating potentially or, or, or poor education, right? Just don't know any better. Or I live in a food desert or et cetera, et cetera. You know, one of the questions that we have is, you know, the role of epigenetics does our kids because of the way we're eating as adults does that set our new inborn infants up for a more difficult road are we are we missing that the fact that at some point we're going to have to say hey look parents if you're going to have kids you have to get your 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 genetics online by not by by being a better human being where do we begin this you know cuz we at some point we have to well, the question sort of draw is, a line is the, the question sand, about right? prevention or about once you're in the hole is it the only way out by changing the entire environment? So I definitely, I know that there's data, and I can't quote it off the top of my head, but I know that there's data that suggests that the way the environment of the pregnant uh, fetus, what it's exposed to increases its risk of certain cardiovascular disease, um, which means that that fetus, some of the things that are going on during the fetal period in terms of environment and um, foods and ingestions, such as smoking, for example, increases the fetus's risk of having events later. So that 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 in and of itself is pretty scary. But that that kid has really that baby has no control over that environment. But that's one of the things that when we developed the full team lift program, um, which we'll get to in a second, I felt that the only way I can affect change in these is I only recruited patients whose parents were willing to take the same level of commitment because we can't expect an adolescent or a child to have any control over their environment, especially in terms of nutrition. And if the parents are not willing to change that environment for themselves, we are setting ourselves up for failure. And that is the reason why I think one of the major contributors of why all these non-surgical weight loss programs fail is because they're not addressing the environment. They're addressing specifics, a small component. Right. You can't have, you can't have one kid in the household eating lucky charms for breakfast and the other kid eating kale and eggs. Or the the whole, or the whole family doesn't, doesn't value walking or, or sleeping. Okay, so we, we've hinted I at gotta it. Ask, can I ask one more question before we get to Teen Lift? One more question, because I think this, um, and, and then this will sort of circle up my, you know, the school environment is yet another environment where kids, you know, they're, they're often, especially as they get older, middle and high school, they're actually given a lot of choice about what they can choose. Um, and it seems to me that, 
you know, anytime a kid has a choice between like a hard boiled egg and a muffin, AKA morning cake, um, they're always going to choose the muffin. I mean, this is just like human nature. Um, it's, uh, so it's it, default it's genetic a, drive. It's just default genetic drive. So, I mean, it is really the, 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 what we need to do as adults and in our communities is say, Hey, we can't even offer Doritos and who knows what other gross things to kids Correct. because they can't help themselves, but choose those when things. You, it's, we know that carbohydrates, craving for carbohydrates in terms of functional MRI appears the same way as if the people who crave opioids. And so if that's, if every morning the, you know, the kid gets to school and they get their hit from their morning cake, right? Instead of getting their opioid high, they're not going to want eggs. However, if you take away that stimulus to begin with, that craving goes away pretty quickly. It just Blood can't be, it can't be a choice. We're just, it's not an issue right. of willpower. It's an issue of just take the fact it that- away. That's right. No, it ends it ends up being a problem with of willpower. It absolutely does because you can't expect a kid who gets to school and gets the sort of the sugar high every day to no not way. want it every day. Dude, I get a sugar high when I start craving the cookie at like ten o'clock right. at night. I, I'm, yeah, you know, you if, there, if there's the cookies, night. if there's cookies in the house, they're dead. <laughs> okay, so though is that this data from from Ludwig, and we'll get to King up after this. Basically, he's a he's a, the the He's the director of the obesity and sort of weight management program at Boston Children's. He's done a lot of really remarkable ventures. There's a book I put out called Always Hungry. It's just fantastic. And actually, the first half of the book, it goes through the science. One of the things that he talks about is that, you know, that this sort of cycle we just talked about, this craving cycle, when you take away the stimulus, that craving goes away pretty quickly. So it doesn't take very long for kids to develop um, a sort of a, a blocked response, that initial stimulus of wanting that, if you're giving them an egg instead of the, even muesli, or like <laughs> there's so many things that we think are, are healthy breakfast, and they're, they're not, you know. Lo a carbohydrate-loaded uh, meal with no protein there's nothing about it that's uh, appropriate. You know, yeah, uh, and it just doesn't even support learning. And Nick you know, Gill's breakfast. He's like, hey, if you're if you're struggling with this, you know, he there are plenty of good resources around simple lower carbohydrate, protein rich breakfasts. Not not no carb, not not keto, not crazy, just lower carbohydrate. Lower. But his his go to is called he calls it the beast. It's bacon, egg, avocado, tomato, and spinach. <laughs> He's like, tell me you're gonna be full. You're you're gonna be hungry after that, after the beast. And that's his like health recommendations. Like, there's no way you're gonna do it. Right. Okay. So we have digressed five thousand times here. I am really excited for you to tell us about Teen Lift. Um, how did you begin the program? Who's involved? What are the objectives? And what I, are you guys learning? And I love this. That as a physician, at the end, you're saying, okay, we have to have a radically different approach to this issue this problem this if we're going to save kids lives and improve the quality of their life for the rest of their lives something has to work differently and can you talk about what that is so when we started so gustavo Villalona is my partner and um, here in i'm a pediatric surgeon at a hospital named cardinal glenn and he and i are 
He's one of my best friends. He's one of my workout partners. And um, about three years ago, four years ago, when we started really thinking about bariatric surgery, we started to think about, okay, so what are we going to do for our kids before surgery to put them through a really rigorous program to make sure that they're developing the right kind of healthy habits that will make them be successful post-surgery? And we looked and we, there was nothing that we felt was good in that. So from that was born basically an obsession to identify what are the factors in the programs that have been found to be successful, even if they only had a tiny modicum of success. I was looking to find what programs had success at, of sustained weight loss at two years. And I basically did a very deep dive into the literature to identify every program that I thought in the past two decades that had a specific factor that made it successful and basically compiled a list of things that I felt were doable. And um, I started developing a team. I mean, I basically, what, so the other guy who works out with me and Gustavo is a guy named Justin Harris. He's the head of um, the athletic department at a local um, elementary school named Forsyth Elementary School. He's a level two CrossFit coach, but he's much, he's, he's got 55 other certifications. He's just also one of the smartest guys I've ever met in my life. And Justin and I started developing a program on paper that we felt we can, we, if we put the right team together, we can develop. And the, the components of the program are that had to be, one of the things that I couldn't find is, okay, you have a, an obese child, and this is something that's right up Kelly's alley. Obesity results in maladaptive movement patterns. Being obese changes your body musculature and how it handles load, its own load. And morbid obesity has a very specific sort of body habitus. It's pretty common, where there's an anterior tilt to the pelvis, there's valgus at the knees, and there's flattening at the feet. And there's you know this pronation at the feet, and they basically they're supporting their load in a way that's unhealthy for all the joints in the posterior chain, correct? And that's actually the same movement pattern when kids have altered cerebellar function, like cerebral palsy. It's a default position where you're just you don't have to be active; you can hang passively on the structures. It's a hundred percent right for like spastic diplegia. And so that's that's a very common pattern, and 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 that's why you don't see most most of the time when somebody reaches a certain level of obesity, they can't they have their gait is so altered and they shuffle, and it's not that they shuffle because they can't feel the ground like somebody who has you know had a stroke. They shuffle because like you said, they can handle that load and move small small segments of distance without having to engage. So I couldn't find any exercise program that programmed specifically to address and correct the maladaptive movement patterns of the obese. The second thing was that programs that did not include a behavioral modification component had very poor long-term outcomes. So I needed to identify a behavioral modification tool that I felt would have good efficacy in my patient group. And I didn't necessarily identify what kind of a behavioral tool was going to be the best. Is it having a psychologist make specific recommendations? Is it having behavioral, like a psychologist involved in my program and interviewing the kids? But I'll get to how we came to behavioral modification tool, but we had to find that. And the third thing was nutrition. Nutrition had to be a part of the program. 
and it had to be a part of the program in the context of the exercise. So Justin, who is a Brandex coach, said, hey, I think you should call Jeff and Mickey. I'm like, Jeff and Mickey who? So he's like, uh, Jeff and Mickey Martin. And he basically made the connection and um, we had a, probably a half an hour call and Gustavo and I went out to Ramona when we were out in San Diego to visit them. And we spent about four hours. And during our four-hour sort of long, really deep conversation about what we were looking to do, Jeff said, hey, we're going out to Cleveland to this group called Topuku. And I'm like, is that an Indian reservation? He's like, no. It stands for the only person you cheat is you. And it's a behavioral modification or emotional learning program that is used in many jails. In some states, it's in every jail. It's basically a tool that people use in jail uh, for nonviolent offenders to decrease their jail time. So we know that recidivism, which means the likelihood of going back to jail, for any person who's jailed once, is about 65%. People who take Topuku, and this is a, an N of more than 30,000 participants, this program, which gives you seven essential transformational tools, the recidivism of jail amongst this cohort is 25%. So it decreases your risk oh, wow. of going back to jail very significantly. And the way this program works is it basically gives you very specific tools of how to make a better decision when you're faced with the same noxious stimulus that puts you in jail in the first place. And so when I looked at the program, and like the fact that Jeff made this connection is, I think, the linchpin to this program. It is the same kind of decisions that the kids who are trying to change their healthy into a healthy lifestyle. It's the same kind of decisions they're going to have to make because they have accustomed themselves to respond to certain things by using food in an unhealthy way, and we're trying to teach them other ways of dealing with it. And so we so included in the this, our program our exercise program we we went out to went out with Jeff and Mickey to Cleveland and met with Kim Williams and Norm Mulder who are the Topuku Foundation they basically have a gym there um, where they where the Brandex held a certification and we spent probably eight ten hours developing the program that is now Team Lift. Other components of Team Lift are that, like I mentioned, I am looking for only morbidly obese kids whose parents are willing to participate in the program. So I'm actually screening certain kids who I think would benefit from this program. I'm screening them out. If I get a sense or the parents verbalize to us that they are not willing to participate in a minimum of 50% of the program, then we don't include them in our so it's actually difficult because I would like to, I would like to tackle our entire adolescent obese cohort, but I feel like we have to, this is the, if we can identify the right group, that's the low hanging fruit. And let's see if our program will work. So we developed, there's also data to show that the length of the program is extremely important. And that's not necessarily length in terms of months or years. It's a certain number of interactions. So 
programs that have a minimum of 50 interactions have a much higher efficacy in terms of long-term weight loss. And th when I say much better, it's not that they have more weight loss. It's just that they've kept the little weight that these programs have, that have been this long. Like the average weight loss is like six pounds, but they keep it on, right? But the, again, some of these programs didn't include a behavior modification tool right. or it didn't include a nutrition tool. Then the, so we have the Topuku part, which we include in every one of our lessons. It, so the program that we developed with Jeff and Mickey and with the Topuku is a four-month program. It's three times a week. It's at the most inconvenient time. It's at 7.30 at night to 9 p.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays and 4 p.m. to 5.30 on Sundays. It's like at the end of a long day. And um, we have 13 kids. And the way we programmed it is also based on evidence. It's all evidence-based. So sequencing of when we enter nutrition has also been important. So in some programs have sequenced nutrition first followed by resistance exercise or vice versa. And it's been found that when you sequence nutrition after exercise, there's better efficacy. So we started the program with a very sort of finely detailed movement program that Jeff and Mickey wrote that does not have um, plyometrics in it. It does not have... Um, explosive movements, but it has a lot of loaded movements because there is also data to show that resistance exercise has a much better, um, it is much more effective in increasing lean body mass than non-loaded movements. You know, there, and there's two points that just jump out at me I want to just highlight. One is that Jeff and Mickey have been working with kids for a long time. And one of the things they notice is that when they grab uh, kids in middle school and high school who were overweight or obese, Again, powerlifting. Those kids had radical success powerlifting because it was they were they were there were movements where they could be successful, they could be strong, they could see progress right away. It wasn't just some aerobic slog that you know they knew they were going to be and that you know they knew that they wouldn't be successful at, and that really geared them towards the next conversation. So that that makes sense, and even what we've heard. And the second thing that's really interesting about the interventional nutrition component after. The exercises, that's exactly what Stacey Sims just recently said, is that when we have girls and, and youth sports, particularly women, though, who are under eating or having a difficult time fueling because of body issues, that an easy way to, an easier way around that is to focus on food right around the, the performance and the exercise. And then, and then it was a way of sort of, sort of deregulating or desensitizing what was going on. That's, that's really interesting. So... Yeah, exactly. So the program you mentioned, the other part of having it be resistance-based is that we're harnessing a an area that these, these athletes already have, which is that they're already strong. So we're bringing them into an environment where they're safe, where the, the, our partners um, are is a specific gym, CrossFit 26, with... Um, we had the, which is owned by an incredibly, very, very astute, smart, and incredibly perfect partner for this program, um, Elizabeth Worley. And she's actually one of our coaches. And we run the program at a time where the gym is completely closed to the public. So they're, they, we wanted to provide an environment that was safe for these kids, where they came in and they knew that they had nothing to worry about other than themselves, that somebody wasn't going to walk in and see them 
working in an area that they might feel uncomfortable. Um, the other thing is providing them with the kind of stimulus where they were going to have early wins, which is like using the powerlifting moves, was going to provide an environment where they felt that they had um, uh, positive change and agency. And so that's exactly, this is all, I mean, we stipulated all these things and hoped that they would have, see the results that we are actually seeing, but we didn't know. Like we just, we were guessing that if we build this program right, we're hoping it's going to work, right? And it's, and, and it's, you guys have been running this pilot since January? So we've been, no, we've been running the pilot. We've been developing the pilot since January. We just started our pilot in the first week of September. So we are in our fifth week. And we are, this is our first cohort, and they're, so I can tell you the cool things about the program. Number one, our attendance rate is 80 to 100%, which is- That is awesome. Crazy. It's crazy. Like, <laughs> if, if we've talked about adherence before, adherence is the dirtiest word in any, like compliance adherence, adherence is, is a little more friendly word. It's the dirtiest secret out there that our adherence is terrible at all things. And so at 80 to 100 rate, that's like- the adherence of addiction. Well, also you mentioned the times are really inconvenient, but they're not really because it means that everybody can actually attend. Right. It's a time that it's they know that they're coming and nobody else is there, but it also is a time where they shouldn't be doing anything else. The other pretty cool thing is that every single coach that's involved in my program, so we have me, Justin Harris, who's the head of programming and sort of quality control, and he's the one who really pieces out little details of Jeff and Nikki. Um, then I have the, my executive director of the program, who's a crazy great athlete, and she's just the best, the best. Her name is Sarah Plum. We, every single coach is trained in motivational interviews, which is a way of communicating with these kids in a way that gives them efficacy. Basically, a, it's a specific a way of discussing health issues, specifically obesity, where you're putting it a little bit on the person to identify why they think they're failing, but we use it in every interaction with these kids. Other pretty cool, cool part of the program is that we are not looking at anthropomorphic biometric measures at the gym. We're not weighing any of these kids. Not, not the at gym. the gym. There's no negative association. Everything, right, because another evidence-based piece is that BMI report cards have a, have a uh, detrimental effect on weight loss. So there are schools that, you know, that this is like a government recommendation that schools should send home BMI report cards. Ugh. And the amount of stigma that that carries, and there's been a lot of data now that shows it's, it had the opposite effect of, the, you know, this intervention in school. So we don't do any of that. We measure success by attendance and performance measures. We have a, we have a, we had a benchmark test on day one, and we had a repeat test yesterday. And um, I can tell you every single athlete, every single athlete, uh, basically doubled their numbers in almost every one of our programs. Oh, <laughs> is that all? Just 100%? That's one of the numbers you get from like the men's lifting magazines when right. you eat the protein. 200% stronger in five right. weeks. Let me ask you this. There's, this is, I love this ongoing experiment. It, it's so crucial. Do you guys have a website where we can point people at this? where people can do a little bit deep dive. Cause I think what I, people are gonna listen to this and be thinking, holy crap, I can do this. I know a doctor, I have a gym, 
I know, you know what I mean? I think you're going to definitely light some fires under some people where people are going to want to reach out and find, where do we find more about the Teen Lift www.teen-lift, not underscore, dash lift.com. And I know you are also on Instagram at, at Teen Lift, am I right? Correct. Now this, this, this uh, motivational interviewing piece you're talking about, would you recommend that for every parent who has a teenager too? Because that seems like a very useful thing. I did quite a few lessons on motivational know, interviewing in my precision nutrition and I, class. So. And I noticed that my adherence around doing things like loading the dishwasher more effectively are uh, are, they're, they're, are even better now, Jay. I'm sure. I'm sure they are because he puts it on you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I just I want to. You know, we've been we've been chewing on your time. This is. Um, I just. I want to give people just a, uh, an insight of m why this is particularly important to me. There was a time when my, my parents were divorced and I went and visited my father in New Mexico. He was a pilot and I got left alone a lot while he was uh, flying around. This is the seventies, right? So, but I came back a fat kid and my mom picked me up at the airport and literally was shocked at what had happened. And I had just discovered the, the comfort of food and I had a girl's name. That rhymed with smelly jelly belly, which was tough, and a bowl cut. Thank you. And uh, you know what I can say is that I remember, I still remember the interventions of like my dad. Tell you know, my mom pulled me aside and saying, "Hey, we have to watch your weight." And it, you know, it was it, all those years later. You know, still I, it's burned in my brain, and we we're just not doing a good job of supporting kids and supporting parents around this because uh, you know it's a complex issue. Yeah, and we are just, I just want to add that we are so grateful for you spending some time with us. I mean, I, I feel like we could, of course, talk about this for another three hours, but there are so many good nuggets, and I just am especially grateful for the list of five things that families can do because I think that is actionable and so helpful. Well, I will so, yeah, I'll provide all of the literature if anybody wants. You can provide them my email. And uh, I'd be, I'd be, listen, this is the, I think we all, we're all in the same fight together, and that you can't fight the fight unless you're informed. True Amen. fact. Men. Well, fact. Thank you. Thank you for um, being on the Ready State with us. And we will put all this information in the show notes and how people can contact you as well. And I'm not sure if I have a tethered cord syndrome or some need <laughs> for my own personal pediatric surgeon, but uh, maybe you would be my own personal pediatric surgeon you, just for me personally. You really don't want me to be that because I mean, I tell people all the time, you don't want, you don't want to need me. You know, <laughs> I, I take care of like traumas and that kind of stuff, you know. Your no one. patients are very, very lucky. Well, thank you again, doctor. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Ready State. If you like what you're hearing, check out all of our episodes here or at mobilitywad.com. The Ready State is the podcast of mobilitywad.com where we've assembled the world's most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. Each motivated by the simple idea that all human beings should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under MobilityWOD. That's W-O-D as in workout of the day. Till next time, cheers, everyone. You got it! Kelly Surrett is a New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. 
He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is the co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and Mobility Wad, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it. You better stop.